Last uh, Sunday, we looked at the critical need to lay down our lives for one another. And that according to the Apostle John in his first epistle that we as a church have been re-reading together, uh, this level of love, this sacrificial Christ-like expression of love is one of the core defining features of genuine Christian faith. This is what sets us apart. This is what speaks to a watching world about who we are, about who we belong to. And according to uh, chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And just to sort of flip that idea on its head, it means that if we don't love, or if we fail to love our Christian brothers and sisters, that is those sitting around us this morning, then there probably are grounds to question the authenticity of any claims we make to be children of God, or any claims we make to know Jesus. Because as, as John goes on to say, and he doesn't pull any punches here, anyone who does not love remains in death. Stark. And our role model in, in this is, is Jesus. It always is. This is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So there's the model. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. In other words, we must walk this way. And so it's going to cost and it's going to be sacrificial. But, as I said, in the words of Jesus Christ himself, it's by this that everyone will know you're my disciple. How? If you love one another. And so whenever a, a watching world sees us lay down our lives for each other, then they'll know we're followers of Jesus Christ. That by doing that, we can powerfully communicate to a watching world that often is very cynical. Francis Schaeffer described that type of love as the ultimate apologetic. The ultimate apologetic. Because it speaks volumes. And so, last Sunday, the main message was simple, or, or not as the case may be. It was this. Let us, or rather, we must, love one another with a Christ-like love. That was all I really said last week. Now, as chapter 3 finishes, uh, which is where we left off last week, and as chapter 4 begins, you'll notice that John initially seems to be finished talking about love. But glance down at verse 7, if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Glance down at verse 7 of chapter 4, where he says, Dear friends, let us love one another. So, Actually, it seems John isn't finished with this subject. But before we listen to what Maury has to say about it, let's, let's pause as he addresses a different subject in the first six verses of chapter 4. But before we read those six verses, let me ask you a few questions. What do you do? What do you do whenever someone claims to have a word from the Lord? Or whenever somebody says they speak on God's behalf. 
Or, what do you do whenever someone shares something significant and then adds the classic, thus saith the Lord? Or, how do you process what you read, whether that's in a book or on a website? Or how do you interpret what you listen to on, say, a particular Christian, so-called Christian TV channel? And you're confronted with something that sounds intriguing, maybe a little alternative, or even exciting, considering the Christian faith. How do you know what is being written or shared or preached or done is off God? How do you know? And how do you know that you're not kind of buying into something or encouraging something that actually comes from an alternative source? Maybe a person's ego. Maybe even from evil itself. Huge questions. Very relevant questions and yet not new questions. Now sometimes we, uh, we, we come across extreme examples. And there are many of them. Extreme examples of people who say, claim they speak for God. Or that they represent God. But it's pretty obvious very quickly that they're sadly deluded. And I can think of a few examples during my lifetime. I was going to name a few examples, but I thought that would probably be unhelpful, actually. But I can think of a number. But what about those men and women who who do look like the real day? And who sound relatively convincing and even can do... Or perform what seems to be the miraculous. But as we observe and as we listen, we're we're, we're just not sure. Yes, we want to be open, but we also want to be discerning. We do want to be gullible, but we also don't want to miss an opportunity to hear afresh from God. And so John's advice here in the first six verses of his, his first epistle is incredibly important. They provide real insight and wisdom as we wrestle with those kinds of questions and issues. So let's stand together for the public reading of of God's word. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear friends, are from God, and you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth, and the spirit of falsehood. Take a seat. John has, uh, 
John has spent quite a, a bit of time highlighting and working his way through a number of different contrasts in this letter. And so he's looked at the contrast between light and darkness. He's looked at the contrast between sin and forgiveness, between children of God and children of the devil, between love and hate. Lots of contrast dealt with in this short epistle. But the one he comes to now is the contrast between truth and error. And you'll know that uh, if you've been following this series that, that false prophets were a major problem in John's first century context. And they had been a serious problem for a number of years. Jesus, a few decades earlier from whenever John was writing, said this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So false prophets were nothing new in this day. We also know that false prophets plagued Old Testament society, telling kings and the people what they wanted to hear, and then they put a spin on it by saying that, listen, this is the message that is from God, when actually it wasn't from God, as the true prophets clarified over time. So John is not addressing or or speaking into a, a new issue, but he does offer some intriguing advice for his first century, and I want to suggest his 21st century readers whenever you sense that false prophets might be screaming for your attention. And so he says this, Dear friends, don't believe every spirit. Or as Eugene Peterson captures it in the message, My dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. And so just because someone says that their message is divinely inspired, or that it's absolutely true, We don't necessarily need to take that as read. Now, the fact that John says here, do not believe every spirit, confirms the reality and the existence of different spirits. And so his key piece of advice here, and his central instruction in recognizing, listen, there are different spirits about. Let's be honest about that. Let's recognize that. Let's face up to that. But here's what you must do. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. In other words, you've got to consider this. You've got to scrutinize what someone's saying. You've got to examine it. Don't just accept it. Don't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. Because the reality is charlatans and imposters do exist. Out there. In here. And in Acts 17, we we read about a bunch of people in a particular place who were commended for the way they tested. They were commended for their approach. Paul and Silas arrived in a, a particular place, as I say, and this is what we read about the people there. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Not sure why that is necessarily. But for they received the message with great eagerness. But this is what they also did. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was actually true. He said, we're not going to just believe everything he tells us. We're going to test it. We're going to consider it. And so what they did was they tested what Paul shared with them alongside scripture. And that's such a vital lesson in the testing process because anything we read, anything we hear has got to be filtered through that lens. 
And one of the, the issues it raises is the importance of, of knowing God's Word, of being familiar with its emphasis, familiar with its teaching, so that we can compare and we can contrast what is being shared out there, what is being shared in here, what is being written, what's been put in the net, what is being portrayed uh, in our TV screens, that we can compare and contrast all of that alongside Scripture. And it's probably, I mean, it's a huge challenge, but it's probably why this particular group of people did it every single day. They realized they had to. And I think we made the, the point a few weeks ago as we were working our way through this series, but it, it is worth restating that we've got to be Bible-saturated Christians. That one of the characteristics of us has got to be that we're people of the book, people who are committed to a regular and consistent engagement with God's Word. So that when we do hear things, that we can process them. We can hold them up against what we know of God's Word and say, does this stack up? Does this resonate? So back to John's advice. Test the spirits. Listen carefully. Sift and weigh what you hear. But he doesn't just leave it at that because John knows that false prophets are actually unlikely to come out with something that's totally absurd and that's obviously ridiculous. They don't. They tend to be much more subtle than that. And so John goes on to identify a key test that enables you to discern any fatal flaws. What are they saying, says John? What are they teaching about Jesus? Look at verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. So here is how you know something is from God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist or Anti-Messiah. You see, for John, here was the central, pivotal issue. And we already know this from the prologue to his gospel. The Word who was with God and the Word was God became flesh. That's a starting point of his gospel. And this Word that became flesh lived among us. You take that away, and as far as John is concerned, the whole Christian faith crashes to the ground. Kick that one into touch and you're left all over the place in terms of a Christian belief system. The problem was that in John's situation, the false prophets known as the Gnostics, they couldn't accept the humanity of Christ. Jarred with them. Couldn't accept it. They did not believe that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And as far as John was concerned, any spirit that was making someone, anyone, deny that Jesus had come in the flesh is the spirit of the anti-Messiah. They are determined to stop people believing at all costs in the incarnation. And I know you don't need me to tell you this, but that spirit is still alive and well today in our world. Encouraging many people to just pour scorn on this idea that God actually became a human being. To say it's nonsense. The spirit of anti-Messiah. 
God did not become a human being. That, that is still very alive and well. But for us, and I know it is a huge claim, it always has been to say that God became a human being. But despite the fact that it's a huge claim, it's a central one, and it's a non-negotiable. Because there are serious consequences if you do not accept the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. And we need to know what those consequences are. You see, if you buy into the spirit of anti-Christ, anti-Messiah, then Jesus can never be your pattern or your example. If Jesus was not really human, then he wasn't able to identify with us. And if you sort of rip the incarnation out of our belief system, then God and humanity can never resume the relationship they were created to enjoy. The great truth of the incarnation, the central truth of the reality that God became one of us, is that it made reconnection and reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people possible. And if you don't accept the humanity and deity of Christ, then that all just implodes. And I know there's tons more that, that I probably should say about that, but as, but as John writes this letter to these people here in the first century, he makes it blatantly obvious and clear that what someone believes and teaches about Jesus is the acid test of Christianity. And for us, 2,000 plus years later, that continues to be the key way to test the spirits. Now, whenever we encounter someone or something that we're not quite sure about, we must proactively discover what do they believe, what do they teach, what do they declare about Jesus. But back to the text, verse 4. John affirms those who test the spirits in this way, commends them for it. And then he goes on to explain why those who test the spirits in this way will not get taken in. They'll not be overcome. And, and this is so comforting and so encouraging and so important for us to kind of hear and distill and process. He says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And as Christians, we know that we are indwelt by the spirit of God, by the spirit of truth. He lives within each child of God. That's a mystery. And yet it's explicit biblical reality. If you're, if you're born again of the spirit of God, then the spirit of God somehow indwells you and so as well as engaging our minds whenever we encounter any different teaching we're not left to our own devices to think this through for ourselves we have the spirit of God within us to help and we may feel weak and we may feel unable to decipher what is off God and what is not off God we might even feel worried we might even be concerned what if I do get taken in but let me say this I honestly don't believe a true child of God will ever be taken in by false prophets. Because, and here's why I say that, if I did think that could happen, then does that not appear to contradict this amazing statement of John's? Does that not imply that he who is in the world is actually greater than he who is in the Christian Because that, for me, is what we imply if we think a genuine child of God can be taken in. 
and that sounds dangerously close to heresy. Doesn't mean a genuine child of God won't be influenced. Doesn't mean they won't be distracted for a period of time. Doesn't mean they might be tempted by false prophets, false teaching, warped philosophies. That's always possible. But thankfully, based on what John says here, they'll not be overcome by them. And in verse 5, John identifies these false prophets as those who speak from the viewpoint of the world. And I just want to think about that thought for a moment and take it in a particular direction. We are surrounded by people who express a variety of worldviews. In very simple terms, a worldview is the way we view the world. It's how we make sense of the world we live in. It's how we explain to people the way the world is. You do that based on the worldview that you have and hold. And people today right across our globe hold and promote very different worldviews, clashing worldviews, as they attempt to explain things like human nature. What happens to a person after they die? Different worldviews have different thoughts on that. How do you determine right and wrong? What is the meaning of history? And all these various worldviews are expressed and taught in so many different spheres of life, in our universities, in our colleges, in the media, in the workplace, in and via governments. And yet very often the viewpoint of the world, as John describes it, or the different worldviews that are so prevalent in our society, they challenge, they contradict, they rubbish a Christian worldview. They are just in direct opposition to a biblical worldview. And so many worldviews, as I say, are around today and are challenging us and getting us to think, well, what is a Christian worldview? What is it? Could I articulate it? And so in verse 6, John says, listen, you need to keep listening to God's word. You need to keep listening to us, those who speak God's word, so that you embrace truth and you avoid error. And so in a sense, just to sum up what I've tried to share based on these six verses, test the Spirit, says John. Whatever you are confronted with, examine it. Scrutinize it. And how do you do that? You hold it up against Scripture, but more specifically, you check what anyone is saying about Jesus. You've got to recognize the reality of different worldviews, and you've got, to be, you've got to make sure you understand and can articulate a Christian biblical worldview. And in all of this, take heart, because he that's in you is greater than he that is in the world. But having dealt with that issue, and it almost seemed like he, he pressed pause and went to deal with that, now he comes back to the issue of love, and it's here I want to finish this morning. But if you just scan, and we don't, we don't have time to read verses 7 to 21, but if you just scan down there, actually John mentions love 27 times. 27 times in 15 verses, the word love comes. And so John is clearly wanting to hammer home a point. And he picks up this idea again that God has showed his love for us. How? By sending Jesus to do what? As an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then he says, listen, if that's how much God loves you, if that is how much God loves every single one of us, and here we are back to this issue, then surely we ought to love one another. 
And so we're, we return to this idea. Listen, if that's how much God loves us, that he sent Jesus in the atoning sacrifice for our sins, you've got to love each other like this, costly, sacrificially, taking you well outside your comfort zones at times. But in verse 12, John adds an even greater depth to this teaching. And he says something that, that I actually find quite breathtaking because of its implications. Look at verse 12. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, to get the full weight of that, you've got to kind of hold it in parallel with or stack it up against the 18th verse of John's gospel. The prologue, the 18th verse of the prologue. Because what it says there is nobody has ever seen God. So we're back to this issue. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. In other words, and this is striking, we don't really or fully know who God is until we look at Jesus. I say that again. We don't really or fully know who God is until we look at Jesus, who was the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And based on that thought, we then begin to process the profound meaning of 1 John 4, 12, which is this. People don't really know who God is today. The God who is love, as John says twice in these verses, unless we love one another. I want to repeat that again. People don't really know who God is today, the God who is love, until and unless we love one another. In other words, it's the love between us that reveals God to a watching world that we'd see. In fact, John goes further. He says, you see, if you do love one another, God's love's made complete in you. It reaches its full expression. And that, that really does stop me in my tracks. Because just as Jesus unveiled God before a surprised and unready world, so must we unveil God via our love for one another. Our love for one another is that important. The responsibility is that great. The implications are that extreme. If extreme, if we don't love one another, and I'm going I'm to put this out here, but if we don't love one another, God may never be seen. Or at the very best, he will remain obscure to those around us. And John finishes this sort of love-dominated section of the letter with another no-holes-barred comment regarding what we claim and how we live. He says this, See, if you say you love God, but you don't love your Christian brother or sister, you're quite simply telling lies. That's, that's strong. Those who love God absolutely must love their Christian brothers and sisters. If you're not doing the latter, you're not doing the former. It's as simple and it's as devastating as that. And so in summary, what is the the main point to take away from this morning? Well, it's more or less the same as last week. 
just please let may we love one another. Why? Because we ought to. Why? Because it reveals God. Why? Because it completes God's love in us. And if we don't walk this way, if we don't love one another, well then we clearly don't love God.